So I want to walk you through what's coming up in our calendar. You guys did a good job getting Field Notebook 2 submitted properly. Thank you. I had such a small number of last minute, oh no, made me feel, I mean, that those ones I'm still sad for, but it made me feel happy for. The vast majority of students who seem to get all the files in the right places at the right time. Good job. Um, our first exam is open. So it opened this morning at 8. And it stays open until Friday at midnight. So you have a couple of days in this class and also in your Friday section during which you can ask questions about the exam. Uh, and I'll encourage you also, if you have questions that arise over the course of the week, to send me those questions in emails, I'm going to start a little feed on our D2L homepage of exam one questions and answers. So if any student asks me a clarification on an item, I bet if one person was confused by it, maybe more people will be. So I'll post the question and the answer. And so it's, it's going to be in your best interest as you work on the first exam to log in, do work on it as many times as you want over the next five days, save your work, save, 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 save your work. The exam is not timed. There's just a deadline at the end. And you can enter and exit as many times as you want over these five days. The key is save your answers. It might be wise to hold off on submitting the exam until sometime Friday, just in case there's a question and answer that comes up that affects your items. You don't have to. If you're really confident of your work, you can submit your exam, you know, half hour after this class. I, I won't object to that. But, you know, it might be, might be wise to wait. We can accept any answers that were saved by the deadline. Even if the final submit gets busted, you know, the final submit at midnight on Friday is occurring during the D2L maintenance window. So the connectivity during that two hours can be sketchy. If your work is saved, we can submit it on your behalf after the fact. But if it's not saved, we can't. So the key is save, 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 save. What's the key? Thank you. Yes. Um, then you'll have next week a little homework. A little homework three, getting you ready for your next field notebook. This is going to be another one where you go find an article of a particular type. So very similar to homework two, except that the topic is different. And then you get a week. Yay. I know. That would be good. And then after you come back, that Friday is your third field notebook. Um, field notebook three is about word building and simple sentence construction in your language. So we started last week covering some of the concepts that are important at field notebook three, and we'll be doing that for the next few weeks. Remember that what's covered on exam one is material that we lectured on through last Wednesday. So lecture material starting today, 
goes on to exam two. Uh, let's see. Okay, so that's where we are. And remember how we went through last time this um, three line transcription system? I'm going to try to give you lots of material using the three line transcription system so that you get used to seeing it. Remember, this is the kind of system we're going to ask you to use to present your complex words and your sentences, starting with field number three and then forward. So what's on the first line of the three-line transcription? It's the words in IPA, right? And what do the hyphens mean? Not syllable breaks, but morphine breaks, crucially morphine breaks. So that's what this line is supposed to do. So how do we pronounce this? Announcements. And I think that most English speakers, when they hear the word announcements, are able to break it into three meaningful parts. I think that most of you recognize that announcements is formed off of a word announce, right? What kind of a word is announce? What category? It's a verb. Right. So I've just written announce. That's the gloss, that is the translation of this thing. Tells me what this morphine means. Now, munt. What does munt do to announce? Yeah, it makes it into a noun. So if you announce, you make an announcement. Munt is one of those things that doesn't so much have a meaning as it has a function, right? So I can't really tell you what it means, but what I can do is put in my morphine by morphine gloss this abbreviation, which I would explain to you in my field notebook three, where I give this to you in field notebook three. I would say, by the way, NOM period stands for nominalizer, which is a fancy way of saying thing that makes it now. And then you can have one announcement, or you can have more than one. Here's our plural morphine. So that the glosses in the second line line up with the morphemes in the first line. And then what's the third line for? It's the overall translation of the whole thing. Excellent. OK, so we have some announcements. But before we get to them, here's another example. We have Leah's. That's the name, Leah which I hope I, I, I created it correctly. Are you here, Leah? Can you, if I've got it wrong. Yes, that's right. Thank you. Um, she has a dog. Dogs. <coughs> Who has a tongue? Dog is prominently displayed. Leah, Leah probably has one, too. So morphine by morphine, I've got the name. And then I've got this thing, Jen. I'll give you the, the translation for that. Genitive, it means possessive. Okay, but announcements. Uh, come on, little dude. There we go. I told you that. I told you that, right? Good. You know that. D2L is entitled to be flaky between 10 and midnight on Friday. We know this is possible. That's why we save our work early. That's why we don't count on having those two hours. If you've saved your work by 10 and you get flakiness that prevents you from submitting the exam before the deadline, we can go behind the scenes and submit it on your behalf. But if you haven't saved your work, we can't. Those are going to be blanks. Richard, go ahead. So it's Right. So it closes at midnight. Wayne, did you have a question? Yeah, uh, just as far as the third line, that yeah. doesn't actually have to match up with the canon of pronouncements. So oh, yeah. Very good question. So does the third line have to align vertically? And the answer is no, it doesn't. It can just be, have its own spacage. Yeah. Is it better if it does, though? No. <laughs> Where the alignment matters is between lines one and two. That helps us keep track of things in lines one and two. So, and I told you about sending questions anytime, 
I'll do my best to get you back answers, and I'll probably post your question and the answer to the news feed in AQL so that everybody has a chance to benefit from it. And by the way, I've used this abbreviation GEN, which I don't expect you to understand yet. GEN is an abbreviation for genitive, which is a fancy schmancy linguist way of saying possessive. You could call it possessive, that would be okay. You can use either. Um, there's a general category called case, which you might not know anything about yet, but which is one of the categories you can explore in your language if you wish, and genitive is an example of that. Okay, now. Come on. There we go. Oh. So precious. Such a good doggy. Okay. Wednesday. So I am not able to actually be on campus on Wednesday. I will be available by email, but I will not be corporeal here. Um, and so we will have a guest speaker. This person will not produce a podcast of the lecture, but we will post lecture slides and notes. So you'll have the slides and the notes after class on D2L just as usual. Because I will not be on campus, I will not be here for office hours either, but I will be doing my very best to attend to email from where I am. So please send me email questions and I will do my best to respond quite quickly. You will be receiving your Field Notebook 2 grades no later than Monday at 8 a.m. So normally we have a week turnaround on grading. This round we've got a couple of, of section instructors whose schedules are so jam-packed that there's no way they could give your assignments proper attention without having those extra days. So we've extended that till uh, Monday, March 5th. So don't don't panic. If there looks like there's a zero in the grade book on Friday, it doesn't mean there's a zero in the grade book. It means that grades might not be posted yet. We think that this still gives you plenty of time to integrate feedback into your field notebook three, which isn't due till after spring break. Uh, oh. And I've got some, some new abbreviations in the morphine by morphine gloss here. Three, what do you think three means? Third person. Third person, correct. I didn't put that up here, but I should have. Third person. What are some examples of third persons? He, she, his, her, it's, they, their. The first persons are me, I, we, we, first person, plural. Second persons? You, y'all, you, your second person, third person, all the other people out there. So that's what the three means. Fem, feminine, gender, genitive. So all of that information is packed into this little pronoun, her, in English, at least as it occurs in this position. Does everybody see how that's true? That if I have the sentence saying, her dog, her other dog, the her is a third person, feminine, genitive, possessive, yes. So is this a standardized thing, or is there something that we make it easier for us to understand and we just put a little PS on so, so it's a good question. Are these things standardized, or is it something you can make up for yourself and put a little key at the bottom? There are some that you'll see over and over again in lecture that are relatively standardized, but you're always welcome to make up your own key. Okay. Yes. So in Field Notebook 3, when we use those, do we still have to put it in the text? So in Field Notebook 3, if you're using the same abbreviations that I'm using in lecture slides over and over, I would say you don't have to define those in the text. If you're using something different, you should. And if you're in doubt, just go ahead and define it. Okay? Because you never go wrong by being too clear. You can, you can, it's always okay to define. Other. I think that that word other is just one more being long. I don't think you can break it down. It's interesting though because it has this ER ending. 
that sometimes acts like a separate morpheme doesn't act like a separate morpheme in this word. How do I know that? It, yeah, it doesn't mean anything. So remember, to, to figure out morphemes, morphological structure inside of words, we have to look at not only the thing that's pronounced, but also the meaning. Um, and the ER, if we put ER on the end of a, of a verb like teach, teacher, then what information does the ER add? Person who does blarg, right? So if I've got some action blarg and you're a blarger, you're somebody who does that. Go ahead, Jerry. So if you were to take two pieces, would that be blarg? Yeah. So if, if you were to break this up in English into two morphemes and say that the ER is a morpheme, I'd argue that you're wrong. Unless you can prove to me somehow that there really is a separate meaningful element here that's contributing meaning to the whole word. And that's a thing you have to test with your speakers. Okay, so for English, this word I think is one. Um, but there are lots of English words where people will argue. And you can, it's, it's, it's the goodness of your argument that matters, not necessarily the specifics of the claim. Okay. Now, let's see. I'm going to close the opening poll. Are there really 120 of you, or are there 120, say, two of you? Ah, 121? Anyone? Anyone? Okay. Thanks. Oh, no. I just did the wrong thing. I just closed this thing. I need the show bar. There we go. Okay. It's been that kind of day. <laughs> oh, the puppy is biting the cat. And both the puppy and the cat belong to Leah. So things that I think you should have gotten out of our discussion on Wednesday, we looked at two separate word structures, right? All up until Wednesday, we were building up this phonological thing. And then Wednesday, I said, aha, but look, there's this other thing, which is, has to do with me. So for the phonological tree, what's at the bottom level when we had the, the tree that built up the phonological structure of the word? Bottom level was? Those were the phones or phonemes, right? And then what, what was the next level up? The phonemes are organized into syllables. syllables, and then the syllables are organized into words. Right. So phoneme, syllable, words. This is tricky because there's actually a whole bunch of stuff inside the syllable that we talked about, like onset and rhyme. And that all sort of goes into this middle bit. Does the phonological tree tell us anything about the meaning of the word? No. It does not. It tells us how to pronounce the word. It tells us how many beats the word lasts in terms of the rhythmic system of the language, but it doesn't tell us about meaning. Morphological trees, what was the lowest level? The smallest unit. The morpheme. The morpheme. So the morpheme is the smallest meaningful unit in a language. And then what was the highest level? The word. Yeah, so sometimes people call this kind of tree a tree of the phonological word or the prosodic word. And they call this kind of tree a tree of the semantic word or the meaning <coughs> of the word. Okay. So does the morphological tree tell us about meaning? Yes, yes, yes it does in very interesting, delicious ways. I've introduced a new category, the ing, the ing on biting tells you that the action's going on and on and on and on, right? That's what English ing does. That's called progressive aspect, so I've abbreviated it, prog for progressive. Okay. Oh.
so precious. Bridget. Right. We're emphasizing that it's a process of biting. It's not just a fight. Okay, so what how do we define root or stem? And at this point I'm using those as synonyms for each other. They're not exactly synonyms, but they're pretty close. If a morpheme is a root or stem, what does that mean? It has to do with the contribution of meaning to the whole word that it gives. The root or the stem morpheme gives the word its basic meaning. Okay. Often, root or stem morphemes are also free morphemes. So what does it mean if a morpheme is free? It can stand alone. It can be a word all by itself. So lots of times, things that are stems are also free morphemes. But not always. Like bite, right? A bound morpheme is a morpheme that must attach to something else. Okay, so it cannot be a word by itself, like ing. We introduced a cover term for different kinds of bound morphemes, like prefixes and suffixes and even infixes. Do you remember what that term was? Affix. Affix, A-F-F-I-X, affix. So if you want to say that a morpheme is bound, and it's, you don't want to tell us yet whether it's a prefix or a suffix, you can just call it an affix. Hmm. We talked about some examples in which we looked at singular and plural. Remember? Do you remember the name of the overall category? Singular and plural are values for Almost grammatical mm, no, number, right? Number. And we talked about the difference between morphemes that have meaning, content morphemes, versus morphemes that don't seem to actually mean anything, but they do stuff. Functional morphemes. So content morphemes have meaning. Function morphemes have function or use. Yeah. Okay. I think those are puppy ears. All right. Oh, and that's, see, category number. All right. Remember these examples? Just review. What is line one for? We went through this. It gives us our pronunciation and it also gives us our morphemes. And line two, what's the difference between a hyphen and a period in line two? Why is there a hyphen here but periods there? So if I put a hyphen in there, I'm, I'm differentiating morphemes. But we've seen that one morpheme can have lots of information in it, even though it's just one thing. So we separate, we put that information Together, squished together by periods, indicating this morpheme means all this stuff. Yes, Cassandra. Is the plural, the PL, a period just because it's an abbreviation? Yeah, I probably shouldn't have put a period in there. It's just period because it's an abbreviation. Yes. Is the hyphen just a root or stem morpheme? The hyphen should appear between every morpheme in the word. So in this case, it's separating a prefix from a stem. Okay? Prefix stem. Excellent. And we said alignment's important between lines one and two because it helps us to keep track of which thing means which thing. And line three was for telling us what the whole thing means altogether. Some caveats. Is this right, Roger? I'm sorry. I got. Um, so put an O there instead of an uh, instead of an A, E uh, A letter A. She's she's colored black, right? And that should mean something like little black one in Espanol. Is it true? 
I didn't break up the morphemes there, because I speak English. And when I look at that word, I think, OK, that whole thing's a name. I'm not sure how it's broken down. Um, all right, caveats. So all human languages use morphemes to organize meaning, all of them. Sign language, spoken language, we all do this. This seems to be fundamental to the language faculty for humans. We take little packets of meaning and then stick them together in structured ways to make more complicated meaning. That might be the key property of human language that doesn't necessarily seem to exist in other communication systems used by non-humans, or at least not in the same way. So we take these packets of meaning, these morphemes, and then we stick them together into units we'll call words. Sometimes a word is one morpheme, sometimes a word is more than one morpheme. But we know that both kinds of words exist in all human languages, and every word in every human language is at least one morpheme. So they're exhaustively parsed. But languages vary a lot in terms of how many bits of information need to go together to make a typical word. So, for example, if I want to talk about something being hairy in English, I'm thinking of a cute little goat. Imagine the goat. The goat is jumping about and he's very furry. And I might say, ooh, that's, he's hairy. It's hairy. That's a complete sentence in English, right? Complete sentence. Two words? Does everybody agree that that has two words in it? It kind of has two and a half, right? Because of that guy. That's a contraction. So it contains at least two words, maybe two and a half words. It's definitely at least four morphemes, right? So we have our it, third person, singular, inanimate, subject, plus this sub, which is a contraction of the to be verb in the present tense. And then we've got hair, which is a noun. If you've got a noun, you can usually add e to the end of it and make it into an adjective. Right? You guys watched Pee Wee's Playhouse. You're too young to remember Pee Wee's Playhouse. Do you remember? Awesome show. <laughs> so weird. But he had this thing where everything in the house could be made into an adjective by adding e to the end. And he would say things like, yeah, cherry, clocky, wally, geography e, he would say. Yes. What's the S Oh, S G singular. Singular. Yeah. And why don't you have periods Yeah, why don't I have periods in here? Because I'm I'm bad and not consistent about putting periods after my abbreviations. I should be more careful about that. No, but I mean between the three. Oh, between the three and the sig, it probably should be a period in there. That would make sense. Now, in English, to say that bumpy, no, hairy. We're definitely talking about one thing out there in the world. That's the Navajo equivalent to in is also a complete sentence, but it's one word. So there are lots of languages in which a verb acts like a whole sentence. English usually doesn't. Sometimes we do. We can have verbs that act like whole sentences in imperatives, like sit, stop, eat. Right? Those, those in English act like complete sentences. And we know who's being told to sit, stop, or eat, right? It's the second person subject. Um, there are lots of languages, though, in which very standardly sentences with any kind of subject at all can be produced with one word, usually an inflected, inflected <coughs> verb. A verb that has several more things in it, Ross? Yeah, so what's this? that's a good question. So that I'm going to give you a standard definition that's explored at great length in the reading that was assigned for this week. But the standard definition for a sentence is that it's a unit that contains 
a subject and a predicate. And that is independent of any other linguistic unit. That is, you can say it by itself. It's not like inside of a bigger sentence. It, that's not an unproblematic definition, but that's, that's a good rule of thumb. A sentence means you have something you're talking about, the subject, and then something you're saying about that thing that you're talking about, the predicate. So this is a complete word. It's two morphemes. And this, we noticed this, you guys noticed this, right? Last time when we were looking at these, the di is, is actually a prefix. And it might be what's giving us the third person information. That it's a he, she, or it is the thing that's hairy. This is the stem. And the stem encodes information about present tense. And the, the stem means to, it is, something is hairy. It, it's present tense, and it is, and it has this quality. So in Navajo, in, in English, the word hairy is an adjective, right? And it needs a separate word to get its subject. But in Navajo, the thing that means roughly the same thing is actually a verb. And it has its subject built into it. And remember, the difference between singular and plural was different in Navajo than in English. In English, singular means exactly one. In Navajo, one or two count as singular, but three or more. So you see ways in which languages can differ. And what I hope you're thinking about is how your language is going to work with respect to some of these things. So the three actually only means if. The is is coming from the D. Yeah. So it's distributing the labor a little bit differently. All of these things, all of these crazy grammatical terms that are maybe stressing you out, don't stress out about them. You'll always be able to look them up. These are all terms that are related to a particular kind of word building called inflection, inflectional morphology, because that's the kind of morphology that you're going to be creating for your field numbers. It's not the only thing we can do in word building. We can do other functions besides just inflection, but you're going to work primarily on inflection. And inflectional morphology involves these kinds of categories. So the category is in blue, and then different values for the category that we've marked in some of our examples is in red. So we can talk about languages having a case system. You don't know what that means entirely yet, but you know that one type of case is going to be genitive, which means possessive. Some languages mark gender. Not all languages do. Here's, here's a cat. Here's a cat. When I say that in English, I don't have to take a position on whether those are boy or girl cats. But if I'm a Spanish speaker, I can say, Spanish speakers correct me if I'm wrong. I, I need to say either el gato or la gata. Is it true? You have to take a position if it's a boy or a girl cat. So Spanish has a kind of grammatical gender that we don't find in the English inflectional system very much. We really only see it in English in our pronoun system. Yes? So what if the uh, words are more content or context sensitive? <laughs> what if the words are content or context sensitive? In other words, what if, you know, like I? It could be I or I. Ah, so we'll talk about that. That's called ambiguity. So yeah, there are lots of words that can be same pronunciation, mean completely different things in completely different contexts. Ah, yes. Let me put it up there. DET stands for determiner which is a category of function words. You'll, you'll read about these. 
The English articles, the and of, are examples of determiners. But so are words like that and this. Those are also determiners, right? In our language, if, uh, how do we know if they're individual words rather than like you know just a bunch of morphemes linked together where it's just one large word? Because I mean, technically, since it's not written, um, ah, good question. Tell us. So how does the linguist know whether it's a bunch of morphemes strung together in a complicated word or whether each morpheme is its own word? Yeah. If it's not written, then there's no spaces between the words that help. And there are different diagnostics that linguists use. One of the easiest diagnostics is have your speaker say it and tell them pause between words. And they'll pause between words. This is one of the, this category word is one of the linguistic units that speakers of every language are e really easy, find really easy to parse. Except in the weird examples like it's, where it's, some of you guys said, well, no, that's a word, a word and a half. Sometimes you can get strange um, mixed up cases. Now you're you're the linguist for your imaginary language, which means you get to decide. Yeah. Okay. So, but in real life, you would ask your your um, <coughs> consultant. Okay. Ah, dang it! The magic clicky thing stops working. Okay, so, 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 you're doing inflection, which means you're creating morphemes for some of these categories. I think the requirement is that you pick four inflectional categories to work on. Things like person, or number, or aspect, gender, there are a couple of other options. And you create some morphemes that have meanings, right? And you create the rules for how those morphemes are combined into words when they're combined into one word versus when they can stand freely as their own words. And here's the rule that you have to follow because it's a rule of all human languages. It is called the principle of compositionality. So this is a, among the most important concepts you will learn this semester. The principle of compositionality says, and I'm going to ask you to work on knowing this well enough that you can just say it. So let's say it together. The meaning of a complex expression is determined by the meanings of its parts and their hierarchical relationships with each other. Say it one more time. The meaning of a complex expression is determined by the meanings of its parts and their hierarchical relationships with each other. Dude, we're spending the rest of the semester working on this. It's simple and yet it's crazy. Now I want to, um, so by, by applying the principle of compositionality to a thing, what we're going to figure out about that thing is what its literal meaning is. Or it, sometimes people will say it's compositional meaning. We are not going to be able to discover all of the metaphorical meanings that can come about once you've got a literal meaning in your head. Okay. So the principle of compositionality just gives you the literal meaning of the complex expression. Clear? Once humans have these literal meanings in our brains, we can do all sorts of clever, creative stuff with it. But this is the first step. So what do I mean by a complex expression? Ah. What's a complex expression? Do you remember? Person texting on cell phone? What's a, com what's a complex expression? She's sitting right next to you. Hi. What's a complex expression? She's still texting. Hi. Complex expression, what could that mean? Anyone want to help? Is that something that might have a prefix or something? Something that might have a prefix or this is Wayne. You should say thank you to Wayne after class because he's helping. <laughs> so something that has a prefix or a suffix. The, the definition I'm giving you of what's a complex expression is extraordinarily simple. And you're still texting. 
Okay. Okay. So the, the, it's very simple. If it's got multiple morphemes, it's complex. If it's got one morpheme, it's simple. Make sense? You've got at least two morphemes, you're complex. You might also be two words, your complex expression. Each word is one morpheme, but there's two morphemes. You might be one word with two morphemes. Right? You're complex if you have at least two morphemes. So you need at least two things to combine before this principle can apply. I'm going to give you an example of a complex expression from English. Does everybody agree that that is probably made up of multiple morphemes? Now there's chatting. So there's a bunch of stuff in there. See, I get because these are the this is the what generates extra work for us all. If you if you don't want to pay attention, that's what, you don't have to come. It's okay. You can miss those four points that won't hurt your grade. If you do want to pay attention, know that doing multiple things at once is detrimental, not only for you but probably for the people around you. Right? It's really, it's really not that hard. Okay. So, here is this ability, a complex expression. It's one word, but it's got lots of meaning for it. There's, I think, its root. You guys agree? Resist. Resist. Spelt this way, pronounced this way. Why do I think that's the root? Because it's, it's kind of the core meaning of the whole thing, right? The whole thing is about resisting or not being able to resist or something like that. Now, why haven't I made that into two morphemes? A re plus a zist. Because the meaning doesn't seem to justify that. Now, if you were an English speaker who had a really good argument to say that actually there's a root zist in English, and the prefix re combines with it and makes the meaning resist, you might actually be right. Historically, you're right. These, these, this probably came to us from Latin, probably has a root in it that's giving us the zist, and historically, the re meant something, going to OD, you find that. But I think that for most of us, resist just acts like a fundamental unit. So that's how I'm going to posit it. My little guy jump lines should be there. I think there's a meaningful element, ubble. And it's a suffix because it's going after the root. Sense? Now, this guy's related to a free morphine in English. Able. Historically, able and ubble both come from the same thing. But when it's a bound morpheme, it gets pronounced like this, able. So it's not the word able anymore. It's a bound morpheme, able. And what does it mean, able? Able. Yeah, able. Right. Right. So it's got some sort of meaning. Itty. Itty. Hmm. Yeah. I don't know. It's given us some kind of, someone said property of, it's like, mm. yeah. And then we've got this ear guy over here, which is the prefix, which is yeah, some kind of negating thing. So I use negs to mean negative. You could write not, that would be fine too. Now, how do we understand the compositional meaning of this word? Well, what we do is we start from the morphemes and we build up. Adding one, starting with the root, and adding one affix at a time. So I think that able means ability, but it also it has a function. It changes a verb into an adjective where the adjective means able to verb, right? Then I think any something that changes ad adjectives to nouns and gives sort of the property of kind of reading. 
And I think fear attaches to adjectives most of the time. And how did I come up with these? Well, this is English, so I can go on the OED, the Oxford English Dictionary online, and search for them, and it will tell me. Or if I'm a field linguist, I can collect a bunch of words that have that affix on them, and I can analyze them for patterns. So if I've got that information, then I can start building my word. And the first thing I might do is collect my, select my root and connect it to bubble. And how do I know I've got that step right? Because I get a word. And the word means the combination of those two meanings. So principle of compositionality already applies. Now, I can attach that guy to that guy. <coughs> And I get irresistible, and that's a word. So that's a, that's a possible, that's a good step, right? Could I have attached this guy to this guy? Yes. Yeah, and what would I, what I, would I have gotten? Resistibility. That would have been fine, too. But I've got that. Now I can connect this word to the last suffix, and I've got the word irresistibility. And it means what it should mean because every step on the way meant what it should mean. And that's an example of irresistibility. So principle of compositionality, that's what's going on. I could have gone the other way, right? That's fine. So this word has at least two possible, I'll call each tree, two possible grammatical trees. Each tree I'll call like parse, P-A-R-S-E. What we're really doing is parsing. There's at least two good parses for this word. There we go. Now, what's wrong? We get resistibility. That part's fine. Wait, wait, wait. What happens? We've got something that's a noun. We've got something that wants to attach to an adjective. So, I lied. There are not two grammatical parses. There's one grammatical parse. Because the second parse crashes at this step. Now, that's a adorability succeed, but I'm going through the door fail. So each morpheme in the complex expression has either a meaning or a function or both. The word, the complex expression as a whole, takes on all of these. including their connections with each other in the tree. Now, I'd like to ask you to vote. Imagine yourself in this situation, and you say to yourself, this door is unlockable. Here are the two possibilities. I want you to give me a one. If in that scenario in your head you were thinking this door is unlockable because dang it, it's impossible to lock the door. Or give me a two if you said this door is unlockable and in your head you thought, oh yay, I can unlock the door. Do you see both possible meanings? It's like undoable, unfoldable, unbendable. There's a lot of these. So tell me which one you got. Both are right. Give me the one you got first. First. And I'm going to give you the next three, two, one. There's 121 of you. Huh. Interesting. Excellent. Both are poss possible parses. Here's your thought experiment for next time. Why? Why can this word mean two different things 
given that it has this morphological structure and given the principle of compositionality, think about it. And then next time we meet, we shall answer the question as to why. And I will see you guys Monday, but you will have a guest speaker on Wednesday. Okay, so maybe I'll just forget why this is, but for the second compositionality tree, okay. try to do the other word. Yeah. Why does it come crashing down when you try and add no, this is my fault. Because I don't understand yeah. that. So, so, if the prefix can only attach to adjectives, which arguably it can only attach to adjectives, you can't say ear chair. To me, not a chair. You can say unchair. That's kind of weird, right? Ears um, used to only want adjectives. If we How did you know that? Tree, yeah, I'm looking at lots and lots of words with ear on it. Maybe okay. asking the speaker, giving us a list of nouns and adjectives and verbs. And okay, I was going to say, how do you just know that a range of words are attached to adjectives? You have to do that in the field. Okay. Um, okay. But if it's English, you've got the Oxford English language, we'll just tell you. <laughs> okay, okay, that's what that was because I was writing. And I yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Yeah, I made it complicated. Okay, so, yes. Yeah, I got it. Right, right, right. Oh, we have this. Just to think about. It's a master's in five program. Accelerating medicines in human language technology. It's computer science. Hey, Ross. Can me in here just talk? I, sure. I can't. I can't meet with you right now because I'm in class. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Send me an email. Okay. I would love to do that. Sure. Can I ask about the content for some text? Is like in you know my language. Uh huh. The one I'm trying to prove yeah. is like the word halo. Yeah. Okay. There's the halo jump. Yeah. High altitude load opening. Uh huh. And there's also the phenomenon yeah. for uh, helicopters. Uh -huh. There's dust around yeah. the, the rotor. It makes a halo. Makes a halo. Yeah. So, so what you've got is lexical ambiguity, yeah. which is on the sl two slides later than the slide we just got to. The, un the words like unlockable have structural ambiguity. Yeah. Halo has lexical ambiguity. It's All languages have both. Word, right, so right, right. <laughs> right. Well, in that case, you can almost think of it as structural ambiguity. Speakers, yeah. each meaning goes with a particular kind of tree. Yeah, it's just level. how it's used. Right, right. Yeah. <laughs> right, right. Hey, Richard. I would ask for the. I would ask for the. I shouldn't let that get my goat, but you know, it gets the, my goat. The, the second time, when they kept texting, I was mm -hmm. you can leave now. <laughs>